Welcome to First Responder Friday. My name is Conrad Weaver. I'm your host for the program today. I'm so glad you decided to join us and take a listen to our show. And if you have not yet subscribed to our podcast, I encourage you to do that. Hit the subscribe button. And if you would be so kind to leave us a review, that would be fantastic. It helps us to know what you think about our program. And it also uh, helps us to raise in the rankings on our podcast platforms. It allows more people to find this podcast and learn from it. So if you could do that for us, that would be fantastic. Thank you so much. Today on the podcast, we have Ernie Stevens as our guest. Ernie is a police officer in San Antonio, Texas. He and his partner, Joe, started a a special mental health unit in the San Antonio Police Department a number of years ago. And their work was featured in an award-winning documentary called Ernie and Joe Crisis Cops. And this film is currently playing on HBO. You can see it there. And I believe it won a number of awards at film festivals and also won won an Emmy Award. So we're gonna hear Ernie's story about being involved in that film and about the work they are doing there in San Antonio. And just to let you know that coming up in uh, the new year, our podcast, the name will change, but if you have subscribed, nothing will change there. The podcast new name will be First Responder Leadership Podcast. We're still going to feature and focus on mental health and wellness in first responder communities. So be sure to subscribe again. Please subscribe. That's my mantra for today. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Thank you so much. And now here's my interview with Ernie Stevens. Ernie Stevens, welcome to the First Responder Friday podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Conrad. Glad to be here. Yeah. So uh, tell me a little bit about where you are and what do you do? (laughs) I don't know what I do half the time, but I'm located in San Antonio, Texas. I'm a police officer here for the San Antonio Police Department and I'm assigned to the mental health unit. So how long have you been in law enforcement? 28 years now. Uh, wow. Long years. You made like a career that. out of it, huh? <laughs> I did. Yeah, I did. Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, well, thank you for your service and for your service to your community. So tell me, how did you and your partner, Joe, get started, you know, working with people that had mental health issues? Yeah. So for me, it started in 2003. Uh, I was uh, signed up to go to a CIT course, crisis intervention training, which I knew nothing about. It was actually my day off um, at work and my partner, William Kasberg, I'm going to drop his name on here, signed me up to go to the training. And when I returned to work, he told me, hey, we're signed up to go to this week long training called crisis intervention. And when you're working dog watch, you sign up for any kind of training so you can get off of nights for a week and, and get a weekend off. So I was okay with it until I found out what the training was about. You know, he told me, This class is about how to interact and um, relate to people that are in a mental health crisis, try to understand and um, bring resources to them. And right away, I was immediately turned off. Um, I was probably the last officer you wanted to respond to your house if you had a mental health crisis, because when I went through the academy, we had no training in mental health crisis response, none at all. And that's that really, you know, as a civilian, that boggles my mind that police officers are put on the street without any kind of training. And, and, and a lot of what the you know, police work is these days seems to fall into that mental health you know, you know, issue. Yeah, it should bother your mind if you're a civilian, right? Um, so, you know, reluctantly I went and it was on the 
third day of the training, we had a, a representative from the community come in. She was a member for the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and she talked about her son that had mental illness. Mm. And she was reserved to the fact, Conrad, that the police were going to respond one day to her house and probably shoot and kill her son. Mm. And then she made a profound statement. She basically gave up in that moment and said, but if that happens, it's okay because you don't understand and you have a family to go home to. Wow. And I was in shock. Like, I couldn't believe I heard somebody say that. And that was the catalyst. She was the fuel to the fire mm. um, that I just wasn't going to take no for an answer on getting a mental health unit started. You know, of course, as a patrolman, I can do very little, but I knocked on the right doors and, and made enough noise to where in 2008, the chief of police decided to go ahead and start a pilot project of mental health with me and another officer. And then eventually it grew. And that's where I met Joe about a year later. So what did you have to do to convince the higher ups to make this happen? Well, you know, for the fire department, they're not going to respond unless there's a fire. So I tried everything I could. I knocked on doors. I tried talking to deputy chiefs, but I had to go to the community, the community at large, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Uh, we have a very strong chapter here in San Antonio. They work very closely with the court system, the jail, um, the treatment facilities. So they actually made the contact at a legislative breakfast one morning where the chief was present and kind of kind of put him on the spot a little bit and asked him about if he had any desires or thoughts about starting a mental health unit. And I kind of put my head down because I knew I didn't get fired, suspended, or it was going to work out. And it worked out. Uh, you know, the chief was very open and receptive to the idea. I think he, you know, it, he's, he came from a background of CIT training. So he knew the importance of it and it was just, you know, having the right people ask at the right time. Mm -hmm. So what was the response from the community? They loved it. Um, you know, we went out and what we tried to do was take a lot of the pressure off of patrol. Anytime they would get a mental health call, we would try to rush out there and take the call from them or we'd leave them at the hospital. But the time that we spent with the patient and the family, we wanted to make sure that we did more than just look at a snapshot of what was going on in the moment. We wanted to find out how long have issues been going on? What kind of resources have you tried or have not tried? So we really plugged ourselves in with the local mental health authority, partnered with them so we could learn as well, you know, what we were doing. And in doing so, um, the family was very respect, uh, receptive. The patients were very receptive. And then something profound happened. We found out that officers within the department were struggling as well. And we had to start responding to them. Wow. Yeah. That's, you know, and, and and that's the one thing that we're talking about a lot on this show is, you know, those first responders who themselves are dealing with issues like that. So, so walk me through a scenario, a typical scenario of what you guys would do. A call comes in, there's someone that's maybe combative doing some things. What do you guys do? Right. So during the filming of the documentary, because um, we've changed just a little bit since then, but normally uh, myself and Joe, we were partnered up. And we would look for all the calls that were holding in the queue for the city and anything that was flagged mental health related. And we had to we had to get that done, too, because calls were coming in as suicide in progress, disturbance, um, injured, sick person. There was no consistency to a mental health call. So we had to create a mental health call mm. and the dispatchers had to be trained so they knew how to flag that call. And then once we saw a call come up for mental health, we would try to respond to that. But there are many days when there would be five or six calls holding at once. And really we had to let patrol know, hey, try to take the ones you think you can handle, but they're a little bit more intense. Give us a call and we would, you know, we would stay busy all day long. 
Mm-hmm. So what did you actually do when you went on one of these calls? So when we would get there, we would contact uh, the individual that was in crisis. You know, we go out there dressed in plain clothes in an unmarked car. So we're trying to reduce any type of fear or stigma that the patient who's in crisis may fear of the police responding. Because I can imagine they would be maybe more combative, more reactive if you showed up with, you know, uh, a marked car and uniforms. You know, and it's, it's interesting you say that because in the documentary, there's actually a part in that where myself and Joe are working off duty for patrol and we had to respond to somebody in uniform. And you could see the difference, you know, from somebody that was very standoffish and didn't want to talk to us versus somebody who didn't even know who we were and we were able just to walk up and approach them. Mm-hmm. But what we're trying to do, Conrad, is not focus on the problem. We're trying to focus on that person and make a connection. And in doing so, build rapport and let them know that, hey, we're here. We care. We want to help you. We have no idea what you're going through, but if you would help us understand that, there may be a way we can work together to get you the help that you need. In the light of everything that's going on this year, how important is this kind of thing for police agencies to do? I, I think it's, if you're not doing it already, you're behind the ball. I mean, that's CIT training has been around since 1988. So this is not a new concept, but I think our approach is new. Uh, very rarely do we have a department that comes to visit us that's even open to the idea of responding in plain clothes. It's just like, no, that's never been done before. We're not going to do that. And, you know, we when we first started the unit, we had to kind of define what a mental health unit was going to look like and how it was going to respond. And very early on, you know, I got feedback from the public and they said, you know, we always see officers standing with their hands on their gun or on their taser and or their hands in between their vest, holding it out. And it's just, it's scary to us as a community. And I listened to them. And, you know, when we set this up, we said, let's go out in plain clothes. Let's identify ourselves when we get there with our badge and then put it away and just talk to them. Just like you and I are talking right now to get to know each other and then find out, you know, what can we do to help resolve the the issue that's going on in the moment and make sure that you don't go back into a crisis after this moment's over with. Mm -hmm. Did you get... Get some pushback from fellow officers. <laughs> we we did a little bit. We were called the hug a thug uh, unit. Um, you know, y'all are a bunch of social workers now, but that that didn't bother me because I knew the um, the results we were having within the community, and that's really where it matters. And as officers were coming through the training, because the chief ended up mandating that every single officer in patrol was going to get the CIT training, not just the ten percent that's. Uh, recommended through the Memphis model, but everybody, you know, we saw that the officers that were most pushback, they gave us the most pushback were those that were, that had some type of mental health within their own family or a friend and the system let them down or didn't help them. So they were very skeptical. Mm. And, you know, that could have been 10 years ago and things change all the time. And now we have a lot more better collaboration. So as they went through the training and they saw the response and us coming out and relieving them, uh, they bought into the concept. It didn't take long. Mm-hmm. When you first started this, did you uh, did did you see some you know frequent flyers that you dealt with before that now there was a different re- different response? I love the question because that's exactly what I'm doing now. We partnered with the local mental health authority and our San Antonio Fire Department, and we identified the top 100 most emergency detained or involuntarily committed individuals in the city. Frequent flyers, just like you said, those that are revolving through the hospitals or jail. And what we did was we started to pre-engage the crisis. Since now we knew who they were, 
we would go out there, find out, well, where's the gap? Is it medication? Is it transportation? Is it something as simple as ID recovery? And we're able to identify these gaps for treatment and services. The average for each person when we first started this program a year ago, they were being emergency detained about 1.62 times per month. Now that we've been engaged with these individuals, it's dropped to 0.92% mm. per month. So less than one hospitalization per month. So it's, it's been a great success. And what's important about this, Conrad, it's it's funded by the hospitals, which I love. Sure. I love them. Yeah, because they're probably like, eating a lot of this anyway, right? You, you nailed it. That's exactly what's happening. They wanted, you know, and it's not just to say there were a lot of unfunded patients walking through the, the doors, but the patients themselves, it takes a lot of personnel to deal with somebody in a mental health crisis. And a lot of times the emergency room isn't the proper placement when, in fact, they needed to go to a treatment center. So this program that we've put together here, I think, is going to be a national model overnight, overnight. Yeah, it really reminds me of going way back to my early days. I worked in a psychiatric hospital, so I understand the amount of people that's needed, especially for someone who's combative and and you know going through a real crisis. It's it really takes a lot of people to manage that, and and when you're bringing people in, especially that's that's the you know critical moment. So having done this now for a while, what do you think is the future for policing? What should it look like? Well, you know, as we enter the um, social media blitz of defund the police, um, I think with, without getting into the specifics of how do you define that, I think you're going to see a change, and we've already seen it here, in how police departments respond to those in a mental health crisis. A lot of them are starting are starting to partner with a clinician and maybe a peer support specialist or a paramedic, kind of like what we're doing here. And that's a much better approach. And a lot of times, once we've established rapport with that patient, and we know that the police probably won't be needed in the future, this is just somebody that needs to be checked on and maybe transported from time to time for a doctor's appointment, then we no longer need to respond to that. And because you got to think about it, if you're if you're somebody that lives with a mental health diagnosis, why is it that that's the only call that the police have to intervene in your life? Like, you're not calling the police when you have to go get radiation or chemotherapy, you know, but for mental health, it is. So we try to remove ourselves as much as we can to be least restrictive from those types of calls. And I think you're going to see communities move to the, towards those models. And it's going to reduce the call volume for you and where you can focus on keeping the community safe, right? And yeah, it's funny because officers are like, well, wait till somebody gets hurt. And then what? It's like they complain that they have to take all these mental health calls. But when you go to take them away and say, well, there's another way we can do this. Oh, somebody gets hurt. That's going to be it. You know, so we're our own worst enemy sometimes. Right. You know, there's uh, there's a lot of people around and, and I've done ride alongs with law enforcement and I've seen, you know, those kind of th you know scenarios exactly where you're coming up on a thing and, and it's someone that's in a crisis and in a mental health crisis. And and it does you kind of behoove the question is, you know, why is law enforcement kind of the first responder on these issues? Why, it, why did that become a thing? Yeah. You know, and I think it's because we just became the de facto to everything. You know, if your neighbor's tree is dropping pecans in your swimming pool, call the police. Right. So it doesn't matter if it's a mental health call or somebody's playing their music too loud. The police seem to be just the ones you're going to call to solve every social issue that's going on in a community. And, we became very archaic in that and never really trans transformed from that. And I think now we're seeing communities make these changes and having better responses, 
you know, to the needs of the community. Mm-hmm. What can people do? Maybe someone's watching, maybe they're a, a patrol officer in an agency in a community. What can they do to start something like this to go down the path that you guys did? Yeah, I get phone calls all the time from officers wondering, hey, how did you do it? And, you know, everything just seemed to work. It was a perfect storm here because a local mental health authority um, had revamped the way that they were doing business here and they were making law enforcement the priority. So they built a facility with 16 beds that we could get in and out of very quick to drop off a patient. They put medical clearance in there as well in case uh, somebody had a scrape or a cut that needed stitches. We didn't have to go to a hospital anymore. And then they added sobering and detox to that same facility so we didn't have to book anybody uh, for being intoxicated anymore. So they made a one-stop shop. Um, it's important that that something like that's in place because you can go do CIT training in a department and give the officers all the skills and tools they need to do a good job and be successful. But if you have nowhere to take a patient, Mm -hmm. once they're in the back of your car, how successful is your program? So I would say partner with your local mental health authority, as difficult as that may be in some communities, I I get it. Um, But sit down and have conversation and invite other people to the table and get out of these silos that everybody's in and really open this up as if it were a community issue, which it is. And I think we have to look at what, what the ultimate goal is here. The, the goal is to have safer, better communities and to, you know, for the police to, you know, solve crimes and to do those kind of things that police are supposed to do. And it, it really makes a better place for all of us when people with mental health issues are taken care of in a proper way and not just, you know, approached in a, in a more of a criminal attitude. Right. You, you, you nailed it because I deal, I have some patients that have some criminal charges. So I work hand in hand with the court and I ask the court, look, if you will release this patient to my care, I will ensure that they get to their doctor's appointment, that they meet with their case manager. If they got community service, I'll drive them and pick them up. So we, we try to facilitate everything we can for that individual to be successful. And what I've seen on the back end of this are charges get dismissed. People become um, stable, whether they're on medications or learn good coping skills. And the quality of life improves. And it's not just for that person. It's for their friends and their families that they live with. And they become much more just happy about themselves and their life. And it's, it's amazing. You know, you get them qualified for benefits, you get them their ID and their birth certificate and their social security card, things that they haven't had. And it's just, it just does something to your heart when you see somebody else succeed and when they've been struggling for so long. You know, I think it's just part of being human. And it's, it's, it's recognizing people as human beings who have meaning, right. And have value. Yeah. And, you know, I love what the director of the film said, you know, when you watch the documentary, it's not a how to film. It's really a film on human connection, like what you just said. It's being stop being so robotic as a police officer and be human and listen to what individuals in your community are struggling with and then educate yourself on what you can do to help them. So speaking of the documentary, how did that come about? (laughs) That was pretty wild. Let me tell you. Um, So when we first started the unit, we got a little bit of local coverage, you know, media coverage, because we were new and we were providing a new service. And then a writer by the name of Ann Snyder, who wrote for The Atlantic, came out and did a ride along. And she wrote an article that got pretty good press. And then we got a phone call from Byron Pitts from Nightline from ABC 
who wanted to come down and do a ride along. And that ride along was phenomenal. I mean, we ended up, you can watch it on YouTube, but we ended up kicking down the door and doing CPR on a lady. And, and that one, he ran that story three times because police were involved in shootings involving people with mental health with either a weapon or no weapon that were, could it have gone a different way based on training, right? So that story ran three times. The the director of this film, Jen McShane, she saw the she saw Nightline, she knew the writer and Snyder and reached out to her and said, what's going on down there in San Antonio with these two, with these two dummies, right? With Ernie and Joe. And she told him, she goes, well, you just got to go see for yourself. Um, they're cops, but they're not. It's hard to explain. And so she she contacted us and said, hey, I'm thinking about doing a documentary. Can I come down there and ride with y'all? Sure, go ahead. So she shows up with no camera, <laughs> no sound crew. I'm like, who is this lady? You know, <laughs> is she legit or not? But the whole time she said, I just really wanted to get to know who y'all were and find out, you know, is there really a feel for my vision, which we didn't know what it was. And by the, I knew the call that got her. It was the very, actually the very first call we went on was an individual that was homicidal that wanted to kill his um, his landlord that was living there at the house with him, kind of like a group home. Mm-hmm. And um, we were able to de-escalate the situation and let him know that, you know, we were going to take you to receive some treatment. He agreed to it, but he said, you know what? I'm not going to ride in the back of that police car, even though it was unmarked. It still kind of looks like one. Mm-hmm. I said, well, that's fine. Just ride up front with Joe. I'll ride in the back. And I remember she kind of grabbed me by the arm and, and said, what are you doing? And I said, uh, we're giving them a ride. Like, I didn't understand the question, but knowing that she comes from New York, she was like, this would never happen. Like, sure. ever. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, we sat him up front. I sat in the back and we dropped him off for treatment and followed up with him to make sure everything was OK. And at that moment, she said, OK, there's a story here. Y'all, y'all will probably see a lot of me. And, she, and we did for three years. Conrad, she filmed for three years, wow. over 300 hours for a 96-minute documentary. Wow. That's really cool. I haven't seen the film yet because uh, I don't have HBO, but I'm, I hope to see it sometime very soon. And oh, I see yeah, the trailer, yeah. which which looks fantastic. Uh, and I, I guess it won a bunch of awards and it's been in all kinds of film festivals and and uh, people can yeah, see we it. Got, we got nominated for two Emmys and won one, one of them. That's awesome. Um, yeah, so it's a great testament to the entire team that put the documentary together. Sure. Well, I think it's a testament to what you guys are doing. And it's that's really the story is is that what you guys are 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 taking care of people, you're caring for people that otherwise may not uh, you know, just, just be outcast or be be pushed aside, you know. I think and that that speaks volumes and in today's world where COVID has increased stress for all of us. You know, I think we need more and more of that. Have you seen kind of a rise in in mental health issues because of COVID? So what I've noticed about COVID, it's, it did a couple of things. It really advanced technology where it was taking a long time for a patient to get in to see a doctor. Now with telemedicine and telepsych, they actually can get in a lot quicker and they can see a lot more patients that way. That was a positive. The negative aspect for us, one, of course, was um, the dangerousness of the virus itself, you know, having to still go out and contact people. But the um, when we would go to a hospital to follow up with a patient to find out what can we do to help them with their discharge plan, we were stopped at the door. You know, hey, y'all can't come in due to COVID. The hospital's locked down. And it was very difficult trying to 
um, you know, put into place a good discharge plan into maybe a shelter or another group home or maybe a step down facility because we just weren't able to get that contact and trying to reach social workers by phone. It really slowed the process down for us. Mm. And so dealing with kids too, by the way, you know, you, sh- you walk up to a kid wearing a mask and gloves and safety glasses. They get, they get scared. Yeah, you sure. Know, adolescents were very difficult to, to reach as well. Just in your department there or in your city, have you seen just, you know, COVID impact law enforcement officers with, you know, with, with more stress and, and, and trauma really? We have actually, um, our, our sixth floor where I work up there, we've had several officers, um, get diagnosed with COVID along with patrol. The, the stress is there because we've also seen an increase in officer use of force, uh, this year. And I don't know if that's correlation or causation of some of the things that are happening here in, in San Antonio, but the stress level for, I think everybody has gone up tremendously, you know, of course, including the officers. So, you know, that's something to look at as well. Um, you know, I didn't think about that until you asked that question, but definitely a, a factor to think about. Mm-hmm. What do you hope eventually really comes out of this, you know, out of the movie and out of what you guys are doing? Um, some good things have actually come out of the movie. Um, a, um, we just got published in a children's book about um, if you can dream it, you can do it. Kind of a hero's book. And it has all the, you know, like uh, Ruth Ginsburg's in there. Uh, Tesla's in there. And, and Ernie and Joe are in there. I'm like, you're kidding me, right? Um, but honestly, I think the best part is the continued conversation about mental health. Number one. We're still doing a lot of uh, film festivals or presentations for NAMI, for universities and for other police departments that want to know, you know, what we what can we do to change our approach? You know, what are the pros and cons to what y'all are doing? Kind of what you asked, you know, what were the stumbling blocks along the way? So luckily, we've been doing this now um, 13 years as a unit. So I can kind of help guide departments in things that we've tried and failed at and things that we've done and succeeded at to help them maybe shortcut putting a unit together. Mm-hmm. What in, in your work and in the work in, in, in the mental health industry, what really makes your heart sing? You know, for me, um, one, it's helping the officers. I love having the opportunities to help an officer knowing that they're asking for help where five, 10 years ago, they would have never asked for help. But knowing who we are now and establishing who we are and that we're very confidential in what we do and watching an officer become successful as going through a difficult time, number one, I love that. And number two, again, watching community members uh, do well, be successful, be happy, reunite with families. Um, It's watching them get benefits, their faces light up the first time they get their ID card, you know, they're like, wow, I got my first ID card. It's just, it's the little things to me, really. Um, Because a lot of it is just baby steps in a long road to treatment and to, um, to recovery. And it's, I I look forward every day to going to work and doing that. You know, in in the project that I'm working on PTSD 911, you know, we're dealing with other types of agencies, not only law enforcement, but we're you know, working with uh, first resp- all first responders, uh, fire, EMS, dispatch, those kind of agencies. What do you think as a whole first responders need in order to live healthy, in order to to do their job in a better way, in a healthier, 
you have a healthier lifestyle? What what needs to happen uh, with first responder agencies? I, I think for sure, agencies have to create a culture of wellness. If they don't, it, the officers just, I mean, really what help's going to be available? So let me just talk a little bit about what that looks like, right? First of all, there has to be awareness. You know, it's, a, it's okay not to be okay, right? It's just not okay to stay that way. Uh, signage, um, talking about the help that's available, little things like a sign that says you matter before you go out to your patrol car. Just making it, putting some type of awareness out there that, hey, the department is here and we care about you. Number two is having some type of resource available for the officer. And I, I'm not a representative. I don't work for anybody outside of this um, other than my own business, but something like an app, like Cortico has an app. I don't know if you're too familiar with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was, I was scrolling through that, looking at that a couple of weeks ago when I was out in California teaching. That's an amazing app. You know, and that's something an officer has access to 24-7. Uh, a peer support program, I think, is important if it's done correctly. You know, and it's not just peer support. It's it's having a peer support program with outside help, right? For for what I'm trying to do here, what I've introduced to San Antonio is a therapy dog program. I've got a volunteer group that comes in with therapy dogs that visits the substations, headquarters, and they're available for any kind of traumatic event if need be. Um, resiliency programs, having classes on mindfulness and gratitude and yoga, things to help them be resilient. Um, I visited a department that has quiet rooms at every substation and in the dispatch office just off of that. And it's funny because each substation got to um, set up their own quiet room, what it would look like. Some of them had like little waterfalls and it was nice and quiet. Others actually had some gym equipment in it. You know, the dispatchers did because they sit um, for you know hours at a time and then their break, they want to get in there and kind of move a little bit. Um, so I saw some that had uh, some, some gym equipment in it. Um, I also think involving the family from the day you're hired is important. Let them know that they're a part of this department. Bring them in and let them tour the police department. Um, let them know what to expect. You know, if a workman's compensation happens, they're the eyes and ears for the officer at home because the officer may not want to come home and talk about it. And it's important that the family knows what resources are available to them as well. Um, so, it, it, and also I think if you look ahead, if you look at the recruiting brochures that departments put out, I guarantee you, I could probably go to any department and there's going to be a SWAT officer on the front, uh, somebody hanging out of a helicopter, uh, the canine unit, but where is it that the department is saying, hey, we care about you from the time that you're a rookie to retirement? Like, I don't care what those other departments are showing off in their brochures. We want you to know that we're invested into your wellness. So if I think if you can build a culture of wellness for officers, healthy vending machines, just little things, you know, it shows them, hey, they care about me as a person, as human capital. <laughs> they care about me. I think that's what departments need to do. It's not so much what the officer can do, but what will the department do for the officer? You know, I've asked this to a lot of people on this show and outside of this show. What do you do with with someone when when you have leadership that doesn't see that? (laughs) Well, you're getting close to home sometimes, aren't you? (laughs) Um, You know, that's tough because you're going to have to have buy-in from the leadership. If not, you're going to fall back on the EAP programs, which may or may not be sufficient. 
Um, you know, apps like Portico cost money. So if the department's not going to invest in that. That's not going to be a resource. So there has to be either the associations or the unions, if they're large enough to have that, to put something in place. Um, I'm actually wearing a shirt from our 100 club. Uh, they, they help a lot with officer wellness. They do um, walks with families um, for family members that have lost loved ones in the line of duty. They always stay engaged. So having some type of outside resource that believes in that type of program may be kind of another avenue you might have to look at if leadership's not buying into it. Mm-hmm. So on a personal level, what do you do to stay healthy? Wow. Um, spirituality is huge for me, and you'll see it in the documentary. Um, I'm, I'm very closely tied in with my church and my church family. I've got a lot of friends outside of law enforcement, which I think is very important. Um, a lot of diversity in my friends. I love working out. I practice martial arts uh, daily. Um, family time is very, very important to me. And then taking time off. Um, you know, if you're if you're a young officer, yeah, I've been there, done that. I worked every extra job that came along, but it comes with a price, right? My price was a marriage, my first marriage. I learned from that. You've got to pace yourself. Don't chase the dollar bill. Take advantage of your vacation time and don't take your vacation to work extra jobs. Take your vacation and go on a vacation. And that just, I mean, for me, that's that's key. I wake up every morning with a gratitude app, how to start my day. I, I list three things I'm grateful for and why. Just try to get my mind in a positive place before I start the day. Mm-hmm. What's a situation that you experienced perhaps, you know, when, with dealing with, uh, you know, someone who was having a crisis that, that made you really thankful that you had this training? Well, I think for sure it had to do with an officer. Um, he called me up one day. Um, I was actually on my way out of town uh, with my family and he called me up and I could tell his voice, something was wrong. And he said, look, man, I'm gonna be honest. I got my gun in my mouth. I'm done. And I said, I tell you what, you know, I'm, I'm 20 minutes away. Just if you will, please just let me come and see you and talk to you, man. I love you. Uh, your friends love you. Your family loves you. Just please give me that opportunity. And um, I turned around and got back to town <laughs> as, as quick as I could and, um, and took him to the hospital, sat with him, didn't leave him. Because to me, you know, Conrad, these officers have that emergency button on their radio that when they get in trouble, they punch it and everybody comes showing up. Well, this officer, his emotional e-tone was going off and nobody was showing up. Mm. And um, it was important, you know, that I knew what resources were in place. I knew the people that I needed to know to get through the doors I needed to get through to get him help right away. And today he is in a great relationship. He's still an officer. He's been promoted since then. And his life is happy. So, I mean, that's just one occasion every day. Um, you know, I get I get fulfilled with joy from watching other people, you know, do well or take advantage of taking a hand from somebody when there's a lot of people, especially officers, that because of the stigma involved in mental health, they, they close up you know, and they shut themselves off and they won't ask for help. When will this kind of training be SOP for, you know, for agencies at the academy level? Yeah, that's tough because with CIT training, it's very decentralized, right? So some of the programs are 16 hours long, some are 40 hours long, some have role plays, some don't. So no two programs are ever alike because a lot of it is based on what resources are available in your uh, in your community. 
So uh, there definitely needs, if you look at the PERF report, if you look at ICAT, all the national standards suggest that you do a CIT training, but don't do it just to check the box. Put a gold standard on it. You know, take the time and invest in the in the role play scenarios if that's what you need to measure. You know, whether the individuals learning, the participants learning, you know, what you're you're teaching during role, you know, during your class time, does that translate into what they're doing out in the field? And you know, there's other measures you can do. You can start measuring your use of force on the department and watching. You know, here we saw it go down for five years in a row. Mm. You know, as the training increased, the use of force went down. So. I would love to take responsibility for that, but I'm not going to because, <laughs> you know, it's just there's so much that can be done with CIT training. And I think departments are really missing the mark if they're not providing the best possible training that's available out there. Mm-hmm. So if, if a department maybe has leadership, maybe maybe an officer has leadership that doesn't really buy into it yet, what's one step they can do to kind of move the needle in the right direction? You know, get involved with the community. Um, you know, here I mentioned the National Alliance on Mental Illness. I joined them as an organization to learn about mental health before we even had a mental health unit because I didn't know exactly just what I went through the class. But meeting the families and talking to them and meeting uh, the individuals with mental health diagnoses and, and then volunteering at the walks and just seeing what a huge part of our community that that group of individuals make up is amazing. The stats show that 25% of people live with some type of mental health diagnosis in this country. Mm. So, you know, you've got to get involved, you know, volunteer, learn about mental health, and then approach your, your leadership and, you know, suggest whether you get a unit put together or at least have some type of liaison in place that can talk with the local mental health authority to find out what resources are new and available, medications, transportations, mental health courts are new and and coming around. So there's a lot to get involved in. Mm -hmm. Very good. So if someone wants to learn directly from you, how can they get in touch with you? Um, Well, a couple of ways. Actually, I have a business where I do training. Um, You can email me at Ernie, E-R-N-I-E, at silk, S-I-L-K-E-D, dot org. Um, I'm on Twitter at eStevens0845. And that's really, you know, the easiest way I always respond to everybody on Twitter. Uh, it takes me all day sometimes, but I do it. Um, but, I'm, you know, we're training all over. Me and my partner, Athena Grace from Washington, D.C. Uh, we're out in California quite a bit right now. We'll be in Colorado uh, in three weeks teaching out there and then up in Spokane. So I'm looking forward to these opportunities. Very good. Well, I want to say congratulations on the work that you're doing. Congratulations, obviously, on the movie and the, the success of that and just, you know, bringing awareness to what, needs to be done what can be done i think that's sometimes something that that first responder agencies need to see this is what what can be done in your community to make a difference and i think you know, films like that and the one that we're working on is going to you know help help raise those awarenesses yeah and, and just by keeping the conversation going like with what you're doing with your with your film that's amazing that's that's what needs to be done you're going to see a shift in how law enforcement's going to be um, Conducted in the future, you know, procedural justice is coming in uh, heavy and with a vengeance. So departments are going to have to learn about procedural justice if they don't know or know already about it. And it's um, just a whole new level of customer service that we may not have been doing correctly. And I think in doing so and, and just showing that law enforcement is more than just fighting crime. It's about being embedded in the community that we're part of anyway 
and providing the best possible service to those that we can. Yeah. And in the meantime, keeping those officers and those workers healthy themselves. I think that's vital. Yeah. You know, 236 officers committed suicide last year, according to New Help. Right. So we're killing ourselves at a rate of four to one. Yeah. In the line of duty. We've got to do better for us. Leadership, you've got to do better. (laughs) You got to do better for your for your officers, please. You know. Uh, they need you. Their families count on you uh, to provide those services. So if there's a question about that, you know, I always point to uh, the Asher model. You can Google that. Um, it's a it's a seven step approach to creating a, a culture of wellness within your department. Very good. Well, what's what's the final word from you that you want people to really know about uh, working with people? in your community who have mental health issues? What's what's the one thing that people need to know and understand about that? Well, what I think number one is, and it took me about 15 years in my career to understand this, is people don't care how much you know. You know, I've got a degree hanging behind me on the wall. They don't care about that. They just want to know how much you care. So humanize the badge. Humanize yourself when you're out there trying to, you know, connect with somebody and show some empathy about what they're going through and be that catalyst to help them. I think that's the most important thing that that you can take away from today. That's awesome. Well, Ernie, thank you so much for taking time to talk to to me today here on the First Responder Friday podcast. I really appreciate it. And I wish you and your family and your fellow officers a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thank you. Thank you, Conrad. Appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Well, that wraps up our First Responder Friday show for 2020. We're so glad that you were able to join us for the past number of months for this program. We've had some amazing interviews. If you haven't seen all of them, go back and look at the archives. You can go to our YouTube channel or go to our Facebook page or our website, ptsd911movie.com and check them all out. Check out all the previous episodes that we've had here on First Responder Friday. Just a reminder that our show title, the name will change in the new year. It'll be called the First Responder Leadership Podcast with still an emphasis on wellness and mental health in the First Responder community. And we have some amazing interviews scheduled for the new year, including the very launch on January 8th with Stephen Cass Stevens, the immediate past president of the International Chiefs of Police. He will be joining us for a show on that day. And we have some other amazing people scheduled for the program, the First Responder Leadership Podcast. Be sure to go to Apple Podcasts and like and subscribe. And if you could, please leave a review for the show. When you leave a review, it helps us raise in the rankings and allows more people to see this show and more first responders to get the benefits that they that they can get from watching this show and listening to the people that we bring to the show. If you know of someone that would be a great fit for our program, please send me a note, conrad at conjostudios.com. I'd love to hear who that person would be and maybe even an introduction if you have, if you know that person. So from all of us at PTSD 911 movie and the First Responder Friday podcast series, I wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I wish you the very best for the new year. Stay safe out there and we'll see you in the new year.